0: Now Podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist TJ Malkanji. The power of the Bible, and seven Bible verses that changed my life. Before I move on to anything else, you have to understand this book is not a normal book. This book is not uh, one of the options that religious philosophy has given to our generation, and so we can pick and choose. And you know, they're all on the equal, all on equal playing field. They're all on the same level. That is just not true. It's simply not true. And I'm going to explain why. Uh, in a coming moments as to why that's not true. I'm going to talk about the, the, the origins of the Bible being supernatural, the history of the Bible being supernatural, the resilience throughout history and the indestructibility of the Bible is supernatural, and its effect to this day is continuously supernatural. When people have an encounter with the Word of God, things happen. Supernatural things happen. I read this book. I was sitting in my living room. Uh, I was listening to a preacher, actually. I wasn't even reading it. I was just hearing him speak it, hearing him preach it. And I've I've gone through a lot of seminars before that. I went to college. I read a lot of college textbooks. I read Aristotle. I read Plato's Republic. I read all these things. And none of, and I've read other religious texts. None of them ever moved me. None of them ever hit me. None of them ever healed me. None of them ever restored me. They were informational. Some of them very interesting, but it never did anything to me. When I had an encounter with the incorruptible, indisputable, immutable, unchangeable word of God, when it pierced my heart, everything changed. You know, there's that great song that I like singing. It's called, when, when he enters into the room, everything changes. Everything changes. When the Word enters your heart, everything changes. Remember, God and His Word are one in the beginning. John 1, 1 through 5, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the Word taking on flesh and walking among us to show us the exact will of the nature of God, the exact will of of the Father in heaven. And so, when the Word of God enters into your heart, it's Christ's power Enter it into your heart. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Christ is the wisdom of God, the word of God, and Christ is the power of God. So the word of God is the custodian of God's power, his supernatural power. When you receive it into your heart, the entrance of God's word brings light. It brings revelation. It brings breakthrough. It brings healing. It brings restoration, and it gives understanding to the simple. When I read this book, and I'm going to talk a bit about my testimony today because it's the number one verse that changed my life and we're going to get into that. But when I read this book, it didn't give me a, a momentary relief. It didn't give me a temporary uh, bliss or a temporary encouragement or some sort of false hope that I was really on sinking sand. Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 through 27, he said, if you hear these words of mine and don't do them, you're like a man who built his house upon sin sand, and the winds came, and the waves hit the house, and it fell, and it it was greatly destroyed. But he that hears these words of mine and believes them to the point of doing them, he's like a man who built his house upon the rock, and the waves, the same waves, the same problems, the same challenges hit that house, but it did not fall because it had a supernatural source, a supernatural strength that was keeping it resilient. You understand this. The word of God... And I'm going to talk about it very briefly that the word of God is resilient and it has stood the test of time. I mean, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, if the Bible could be destroyed, if it was possible to destroy God's word, it would have been destroyed by now. If it was possible to eliminate the influence of scripture in society, it would have done that already. But time and time again, there have been assaults, there have been attacks, there have been uh, demonic blueprints drawn up to eliminate this book from the hands of the people and time and time again it failed it failed miserably no weapon formed against the word of God has ever prospered and matter of fact it it, it like It backfired on those that took it upon themselves to try and get rid of God's word. Every one of them are destroyed. I mean, I can tell you the story of of Diocletus. He was a Roman emperor in the years 300 AD. He made it a point. He wanted to eliminate the Bible. Eliminate every Christian and eliminate every manuscript of the Bible that was in circulation so that he can finally say that the Bible and Christianity has been destroyed and worship of the gods, of the Roman gods has been restored. He actually thought he succeeded because the Christians went in hiding and they, they hid their Bibles and stuff. They He thought he actually accomplished it. He put a metal plaque, a steel plaque on the ground in Rome that said the Christian religion is destroyed and worship of the gods has been restored. You know what happened to Diocletus? He ended up, Diocletius, I think his name, or Diocletian, he ended up dying a couple of years later in war and um, Constantinople was the next emperor who made Christianity and the Bible the main religion of the Roman Empire. Isn't it funny how God works? Not only did the person who set his scope to attack the Bible get destroyed, but very close after, very soon afterward, there was a religious uh, revival a world, a Roman Empire revival where the Bible was to be the most revered, the most um, respected book in the land, and anyone that spoke against the Bible was destroyed. I mean, you see that throughout history. Daniel was told not to pray to God, Daniel took a stand. Daniel did what he did all the time. He didn't eliminate that custom to praying three times a day. What happened to the people that tried to get Daniel in trouble? They were thrown in the lion's den, the same lion's den that had no power to kill Daniel, killed his adversaries. And then an edict, Darius made an edict that anyone that speaks against the God of Daniel, anyone that says anything against the God of Daniel will be destroyed by uh, edict of the royal empire. Then you move back even further, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Same thing. They tried to destroy them. They tried to burn them in a furnace of fire because they refused to bow to the idols and the gods of that age. What happened to them? They weren't destroyed by the fire, and the ones that threw them in the fire were the ones that were consumed by the fire, and then a new law was announced. Anyone that speaks a a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is to be destroyed by fire. Time and time again, the devil has sought to eliminate this word because remember, I've said it many times before, that faith comes by the word, faith comes by the word, and it's only by faith that we can be justified in the sight of God, so if the devil can eliminate the word, then we don't have anything that we can justify, we can be justified, or become justified, there's no power to stand righteous in God's eyes, because the gospel would no longer be in circulation, people would, I mean, it would, Really, if it could be, it would never succeed. But the devil, all he would have to do is destroy the Bible in one generation, and then the next, from there, God would have to find some other system. Uh, He'd have to like move on other, I, I don't even know what would happen. It would totally mess up the plan of God. But bless God, the Bible says the plans of God's heart endure to every generation. The Bible says if the rulers of this world knew what they were doing when they had crucified Christ, they would never have done it. Time and time again, the devil tries to attack and all it does is it backfire. Remember this, the devil is hardwired for failure. He's hardwired for failure. Everything he's ever done after the fall has failed. Even his attempt to usurp God's authority and trying to ascend higher than the throne of God backfired. He failed miserably. He got cast down to to earth. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Then he tried to get Adam and Eve messed up. And though there was a momentary success, God came on the scene and said, You just bruised man's heel, but I'm gonna, I already made a plan before you even attempted your plan to cause someone to come from his seed that's gonna crush your head. I want you to write that in the comment section. The devil is hardwired to fail. The devil's hardwired to fail. That's why I can tell you something now that's gonna encourage you and it's based on scripture. Whatever God has started in you, the devil cannot stop. Whatever God has commanded for you, the devil cannot cancel. Everything God has ordained for you to accomplish, the devil has no power to stop or to overthrow over, or to overturn the thing that God has commanded you to do. As you go with God, as you operate by his word and keep his word, there's nothing the devil can do to you or to your family or to your plans that would ever get you to derail. You're gonna, the Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So, the Bible's not a regular book. It's indeed a supernatural book. The Bible says, let me read this. Number one, why is it supernatural? Number one, Hebrews 4.12. Listen to what the Word of God says. Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and powerful. So it's not this mundane religious textbook. It's not some boring, you know, educational uh, uh, content where we're just, you know, we're just getting fat-headed as we just learn new things. No, it's a living book. It's more than informational. It's transformational. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.18, or 2 Corinthians 3.18, As we behold it, as in a mirror, we're being transformed into the very same image from glory to glory. Just by the spirit of the Lord. So the spirit of God, when you absorb the word of God, that's why it's living and active. God's spirit is within his word. That's why Jesus said, my words that I speak to you, they are what? They are spirit and they are life. They're supernatural words. They're words that are loaded with God's power and grace to perform the very thing that it promises. It's living and active, powerful. It is sharper than any other thing other two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's interesting. It pierces to the soul and the spirit. You see, understand this. Psychology deals with the the, the body and with the soul. That's why psychology is is psychology, which is the uh, study of the psyche, the soul, the mind, the emotions, your your, your mental faculties. Psychology is very limited. They don't don't have the answer to everything because man is comprised of three parts we are in we are essentially a spirit being that has a soul our mind our emotions and all that and we live in a body so the bible has the power to do what psychology could never do it pierces to the division of soul and then beyond soul, it gets to the very spirit, the core of man. How many of you have read the Bible and all of a the sudden there's something right here that bubbles up? Jesus said in John seven thirty seven. That out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. He was talking about the spirit of man. your, Your spirit man is right here. That's where your spirit man is located. It's at the core of who you are. Jesus said out of your belly. That's where your spirit man erupts from. And so... That's why when you read the word, you remember those two men on the road to Emmaus as they were listening to Jesus exhort them from the scriptures and explain things in the law and the prophets about himself and his crucifixion. They didn't know. They hadn't realized that that was actually Jesus. But when he revealed himself to them, they both said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way? Didn't we have like our spirit, man, leaping? Do you remember Elizabeth when she heard the greeting of Mary? She said, my belly... My, my the, the baby in my womb, it leapt for joy. There was something that was leaping on the inside of her as Mary began to prophesy. That's what happens when you get in the Word. It hits not only your soul. You see, it doesn't just bring happiness. If all the Word of God did was bring happiness, The moment you got out of the word, you'd hear bad report and then your happiness goes. But when you get in the word, it does something more than bring happiness. It brings a supernatural joy that the Bible describes as unspeakable, meaning you can't even describe it. You can't explain it. It's not me happy because my joy is not determined by my happenings in life. My joy is determined by what is written in God's word. And so it's an everlasting well that springs forth. That's what the Bible is saying here. It goes beyond the soul. It gets to the very spirit of a man that, that you know, just like Jesus said, because the world didn't give you this joy and the world didn't give you this peace, the world can't take it from you because the world can't access what's in your spirit you can get down hearing something in the news or whatever and that's your soul momentarily but there's a joy the believer has that the world has never tasted of that's why David said I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever that's why Nehemiah said in Nehemiah eight ten, the joy of the Lord is my strength no matter what's going on no matter what the enemy's planning no matter What the world is going through. I'm driving my source of joy from the word of God that is a a, a source that never runs dry. And then it says it goes to the joint and marrow. That talks about its effect on the body. Do you understand that the word of God is medicinal? Do you understand that the word of God is medicinal? It carries, but not medicinal in the terms of the world's pharmaceutics. I'm talking about God's very medicine. The Bible says in Proverbs 4 that if you'll pay attention to my word and heed the things that I speak to you, it'll be life to them that hear it or find it, and it'll be healing to all their flesh. There's God's healing power contained in his word. That's why Psalm 107 verse 20 says, he sent his word. He sent his word, and it healed them, and it delivered them from all their destruction. So there's healing power, and there's also deliverance in the word of God. People are always asking me, I need prayer for deliverance. I need prayer for deliverance. And I pray, I cast devils out all the time. We, we do that. But I understand this one thing. The easiest way to get delivered, you don't actually don't really need a man to do it. The Bible says very clearly that he sent his word and it healed them and it delivered them from all their destruction. It's the word of God. You know, Luke chapter four, verse 18. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to preach deliverance to the captives. So while he's speaking the word, while he's preaching the word, there's the power of God that comes alongside to deliver the captive. So if you're in captivity today to sexual sin, in captivity today to alcoholism and to drug addiction, if you're in captivity today to pornography, if you're in captivity today to sickness, disease, mental illness, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, OCD, whatever the captivity is, Jesus said the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the word of God and bring deliverance to the captives receive your deliverance today in the mighty name of Jesus Christ the last day the chains of hell held you down was yesterday from today you're marching on in the glorious liberty of the children of God because Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law well if you're redeemed from the curse then why do you have any business talking about yourself being cursed I'm redeemed from the curse and. brought me out of the house of bondage and brought me in to the house of liberty, which house you belong to. So, number one, the word is living and active. That's why it's a supernatural book. Number two, Second Timothy chapter three, Second Timothy chapter three, and verse sixteen. This is an amazing scripture right here. Second Timothy chapter two, uh chapter three, and verse sixteen. This is what the Bible says. Let's start at verse fourteen. But you must continue in the things which you have learnt and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them from, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise. From childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, all scripture, I want you to write that out in the comment section, all scripture, all scripture you need to make that a resolve today a resolution not some scripture am i gonna believe not some scripture, we don't believe in partial inspiration of scriptures, because there's a lot of liberal theologians that believe that, they believe in the partial inspiration of scriptures, that some scriptures are inspired, and others are erroneous, that some of them carry error, they're not infallible, that, that you know, there's some things that you know, we don't necessarily continuously uh, continue to agree with those things, and so they've tried to make the scripture adapt to their culture and to their minds, rather than doing what the word of God is supposed to do, which is to Get our minds and our hearts to adapt to the culture of the word, to the culture of the kingdom. And so there's a lot of liberal theologians that say that the scriptures are partially inspired. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. That is heresy. And it's a very dangerous path to follow because then you're going to start getting into things which, I mean, who's to say the thing you believe is inspired in the thing? That's also in the word is not inspired. If you're going to go down that path, you're going to get into an incredible amount of confusion. You're not going to know what to believe anymore. The Bible declares that all scripture, Proverbs, Psalms, Genesis to Revelation, all scripture, everything in between, everything God said he meant, and he meant what he said. And it is given by inspiration of God. That word is literally, in the Hebrew sorry, in the Greek, it literally means to be God-breathed. So in the New Living Translation, I think in the NIV as well, it says all scriptures God-breathed. You understand this? Well, how did God create man? God created man by breathing in his nostrils the breath of life. And then when God prophesied through men, he breathed through, he breathed on them, which caused them, you know, Second Peter chapter one says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit, that's how prophecy came. That's how the word of God was written. They didn't write whatever they wanted to write. They weren't penning down their thoughts about God. And, and just hoping they were right. It was God breathed. The same breath that came on Adam, and well on Adam when he breathed in him the breath of life in Genesis chapter two, that same breath was breathed on the holy men of God that penned these words down. So it's inspired of God. It has God's life in it. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So number two, it's supernatural because it's God breathed. It doesn't have a natural source. These aren't the the opinions of men about God. This isn't some guy who went into a cave once Like the Qur'an, that's how it was written. He went into a cave and he saw an angel, which, by the way, he didn't see an angel. He saw a demon spirit that totally twisted. You know know how Muhammad got his revelation. He saw an angel that came to him and said... That everything the gospels say and everything, because remember, Muhammad six hundred A.D. It's after Christ. This is six hundred years after Jesus died and rose again. All these New Testament manuscripts are in circulation. The Bible's being circulated, and there's a lot of Christians on Earth at this time. So Muhammad goes into a cave now, and he has this vision of an angel who tells him all of that was wrong. The disciples got it wrong. Here's what. Here's what your uh what the actual truth is. Which I want to remind you, Jesus already told his disciples that. Anyone that comes after me and says anything else, that same is a thief and he is a liar. He is a liar. He's an antichrist spirit. He actually says in 1 John chapter 4 that if any spirit tells you that Christ did not come in the flesh or that he didn't die in the flesh, that is an antichrist spirit and you should be careful of it. So we know, I mean, what what do, does the Quran teach? It doesn't it teaches that G- Jesus was not the son of God because they can't imagine God having a son that came in the in human form and they also teach that Jesus never really died on the cross, that he was a prophet and he didn't die on the cross that it was someone else that looked like him that died on the cross. I mean, you, you, can you spell out heresy? That is absolute heresy and it challenges everything Jesus taught, everything the disciples taught, everything the Old Testament taught, everything that was in circulation for 1500 years up until that point. All of a sudden this guy has this revelation and by the way, when he came back to his wife Muhammad actually said this. This is interesting. Muhammad actually said to his wife and if you study it, this I'm not making this up. He said, I had this encounter with this spiritual being, an angel that he thought it was an angel, but he's like, I felt a dark presence when he spoke it to me, and I didn't feel right, and he was talking to his wife about whether he should go on and write these things down, and his wife said, if God spoke to you, you should do it, and she encouraged him to go ahead and do it, even though he felt something wrong in himself, so this word is God-breathed, this word is God-inspired, It is not on equal level with every other book, with every other religious teaching. This isn't a buffet. uh, Life is not a buffet where we just pick and choose our favorite things and our favorite tastes and flavors from different religions and then just apply it and make our own religion. That's not how it works. There is one truth. You know I talked about this and talking about the armor of God. We have the belt of truth. If you go around and you just have relative truth, well, and truth is subjective to people's opinions and thoughts. Well, that's your truth, brother, and this is my truth. You're going to you're going to be a messed up person. That's why the Bible calls it the belt of truth. It holds you together. You have no belt Your pants fall off, your armor is going to fall off, and you're going to be a a mockery. You're going to be a a, a weird person, in my opinion. People that say, well, truth is subjective. Well, that's your truth. I automatically think these guys are weird people. There's one truth. There's absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way, not I am a way. Muhammad said, "I I think I found the way. Buddha said, I think I found the path to peace. Confucius said, I think this is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. Number three, Matthew 7, 24, I quoted it before, he that hears these words and builds it, uh, their house upon my word is building it upon a rock, and it shall not be shaken. The word of God is supernatural, because it, it not only enables you to build something in life, but it is a solid foundation where you're not fickle, and you're on an unshakable foundation where you're not you're not just you're not just constantly unstable in life. There's a there's a stability that comes. You know the Bible says, "Forever that word is settled in the in the heavens." When you get the word in your heart, it settles you here on the earth too. Number four, it's transformative. Second th- Corinthians three eighteen, the Bible says, "Now as we behold Him as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, as in in the Word of God, we are being transformed into the very same image of the Word." by the Spirit from glory to glory. The Word of God is transformative. Romans 12 says, we are not to be conformed to the patterns of this age. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind by the Word of God. Ephesians 4 says, we are to put off the old men, put off the old ideas, put off the old opinions, put off the old things we learned. The things we learned in liberal uh, colleges that are really just indoctrination centers and stuff. We put off those things and we, we've, we're renewed in the spirit of our mind by the word of God and we put on the new men and we walk in light of it. Number five, the word of God is like water. Ephesians 5 says that we are washed by the water of the word. So the word of God literally, and I know people get weird when I say this, but it brainwashes you. And rightfully, you should be brainwashed. Because there's impurities in your mind. The Bible says, we were, uh, in Ephesians 2, it says this. Ephesians chapter 2 And verse 1, he made you alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our minds, our impure minds, and by nature were children of wrath. So the water literally said, the Bible says, Ephesians 5, we are washed by the water of the word, clears out the impurities, gets rid of the demonic wisdom, the evil wisdom, the worldly wisdom, the selfish wisdom, and all those unheavenly wisdoms, and it implants in you God's very own wisdom. Number six, the Bible is supernatural because it produces miracles. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus was on his way to heal the centurion's servant, and the centurion turned to him and said, "'Hey, don't need you to come into my house. "'Just say the word, and I know my servant will be made well.'" When he spoke the word, the Bible says, the servant that had been paralyzed and was on the way, he was on the verge of dying, his body was supernaturally restored, he was paralyzed, the Bible says, and he was supernaturally healed. At the moment, Jesus spoke the word. In John 5, the nobleman's son, Uh, Jesus said, go your way, for your son lives. He spoke the word. When the man went on the way, when he was on his way back home, people came to him, and he inquired of them, at what hour, they said, your son's better. He said, what hour did he get better at? And it was at the very same hour that Jesus had spoken the word. So God's word is supernatural because it produces things that medical science cannot accomplish pills cannot accomplish, surgery oftentimes cannot accomplish, I mean, to this day, paralysis cannot be cured, and yet one word from the master's mouth, and remember, the same anointing, and the same power, and the same spirit that was on God's spoken word, rests upon his written word, so when you believe it, that same power, you know, he says, I watch over my word to perform it, so God's hand is behind his word to perform what it promises. Luke 1.45 Blessed is she who believed the word for there shall be a performance of those things spoken to her by the Lord. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul commending the Thessalonians said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, I love this. Pay, Pay special attention to this. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, or you received it, or you took it, not as the word of man, but as what it was in truth, the word of God, which works its power in those that believe. So you can have 500 people in a church. Some people are there and they're really not sure. They're not sold out. They haven't bought the truth and sell it not. They haven't done that. They're still questioning the credibility of the scriptures. They might go to church and call themselves Christians, but they're not absolutely convinced. And the way we know they're not convinced is because they don't believe everything. Paul says, I commend you, Because you didn't doubt the credibility of what I was speaking from God's word. You didn't come out with arguments and all that. You searched the scriptures daily to find out whether it was so. And you welcomed it. You received it. You took it. Hook, line, and sinker. Just like uh, David said in the book of Psalms. All thy precepts concerning everything I consider to be right. You didn't doubt that this book was God sent, God ordained, God inspired, and God authored. And the reason, and what did that produce? Because they received it like that, it worked its power in them who believed. Hebrews 4.2 says, the word which I delivered to them, I also delivered to other churches. But it did not profit other churches because it wasn't mixed with faith in those that heard the word. So if you don't mix what I'm saying today and all these Bible verses, I'm going to talk about how they change my life and how they can change your life. If you just receive it as well, that's nice. That's a, that's a good way of looking at things. No, it's not a good way of looking at things. It's the only way of looking at things. God's way is the highest way. God's word is the final authority. God's word is the end line to any debate. There's no, there's no, well, that's just Europe. There's none of that. And when you think that way, it produces power and miracles. Number seven, finally, the word of God is supernatural because it, it produces an incredible amount of joy. Number, uh, I mean, the Bible says that my, uh, Jeremiah 15, 16, I found your word and I ate it and it became for me the joy and gladness of my heart. And then I'll go with number eight, a bonus one. It's prophetic nature, which actually should be number one because it's the most important one. Why is the Bible a supernatural book? Because of the prophetic nature of it. You have 2,000 plus prophecies in the Bible. And all of them that have been fulfilled, uh, because it was time for them to be fulfilled, obviously there's some that have not yet been fulfilled, because they refer to the end days, the end time, the return of Jesus Christ, all of those have yet to be fulfilled. But all of them that um, they prophesied, that had they not been fulfilled, it would have been a long time ago, All of the prophets that prophesied coming events, referring to historical events, historical people, naming them by name, who had not yet been born yet, all of them came to pass supernaturally. I'll give you a few by example. There are 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ in his first coming. 300 prophecies. Now, if you, this is the odds of... Just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled. I'm talking about him being born in Bethlehem, being born of a virgin, growing up in Nazareth, um, having a time where he went to Egypt. Uh, I'm talking about prophecies concerning his death, how he was pierced, Psalm 22, he was pierced in his hands and his feet. I'm talking about all these intricate details that the Old Testament spoke of the Christ a long while before that came to pass to the T Every I was dotted and every T was crossed for every prophecy. Because remember, the flowers will fade away. The grass will wither. But the word of the Lord will always come to pass. It'll endure forever. If you were to take just eight of the 300 prophecies mentioned about Jesus, and if eight of them were fulfilled by Christ and 292 went unfulfilled, the odds of that happening, just eight of them, is as if you took an American silver dollar... You threw it in Texas as you flew over it. And then you had this big AC-130, 500 AC-130s jets fly over Texas and overload, flood Texas with um, pennies and dimes and quarters up to your waist. And then I told someone, I want you to dive into the state of Texas without any knowledge of, any of what, anything that just happened. Dive into the state of Texas and find that silver dollar. The odds of that guy finding that silver dollar are just about the same odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies spoken of himself. Because remember, Psalm 22 says he was pierced through his hands and his feet, referring to his crucifixion. Isaiah 53 says that uh, he was pierced through for our transgressions. It talks about this, this form of crucifixion. But I have to remind you, crucifixion was not a form of execution at that time. It was, the, I think, in the year 300 or 250 BC where crucifixion became a form of execution and it became, it became to be a popular form of execution. But David wrote that in the year 1000 BC and Isaiah wrote it in the year 780 to 800 BC. And they're talking about him being crucified not by being hung. He wasn't crucified by sword. He wasn't crucified by having his head taken off. He was crucified by his hand, the Bible says his, he was pierced in his hands and in his feet. That's supernatural. Then you want to go something a little more recent. Jesus prophesied while he was on the earth that Israel, specifically Jerusalem, would be taken over by its enemies and they'd build an embankment around it, and that not one stone in the walls of the temple and the temple itself would be left upon another. Not one stone in the temple would be left upon another. That not only would they be, I mean, that's very accurate. That's not, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be so destroyed that not one stone in the temple will be left upon another. It's going to be totally uh, crumbled. He prophesied that in the year 30 AD, 33 AD. 70 AD comes around. The emperor of Rome has enough with Jerusalem. He invades it, destroys it. He sees the temple standing. And because In the temple, they layered every brick with like a golden line, and there was a lot of gold in all the crevices of the bricks and the stones of the temple. He commanded it to have, he said this, literally word for word, every stone to be knocked down, not one stone should lay upon another. It's like he knew the gospel, which he didn't, but it's like he knew what Jesus had said. Not one stone laid upon another and then he commanded it to be burnt so that the gold could flow and they can take the gold and bring it back to Rome. And that's exactly what they did with direct fulfillment of what, I, what Jesus had spoken of 30, 40 years before that. Now understand this, that began the diaspora of the Jewish people. The diaspora of the Jewish people is the dispersion of the Jews. From that moment, the Jews began to live everywhere. They moved to Corinth. They moved to Rome. You know Peter's writing to a lot of Jews at Rome. Uh, they, they moved all. They moved worldwide. Today we have Jewish people in every nation, virtually every nation. There's more Jews. Um, I believe there's still more Jews outside of Israel than there is in Israel to this day. And so there's there there was the dispersion of the Jewish people worldwide that happened in seven that began in seventy AD. The Bible prophesies, Jesus said this. When you see the fig tree, which the fig tree symbolizes the, the Israeli people, the Jewish people, when you see the fig tree bud again, which he's talking about, and any listener that heard him speak those things in that moment would have understood he was talking about the Jewish people. When you see the fig tree bud again, know that my return is near, even at the door. And he says, the generation that sees the fig tree bud again will not pass away until they see everything else happen. And then he was talking about end time prophecy. Well, the fig tree was Israel coming again as a nation and regaining their land in the Holy Land. In Ezekiel, uh, no, in, uh, I think it's in Ezekiel, the Bible talks about God literally putting a hook in the Jewish people's mouths and bringing them back into the Holy Land at an accelerated manner that I'm going to bring my people back into the land that I promised to give to their fathers. Remember, at this point, Jews are everywhere now. So they're, you know, they've been the last 2000 years, they've been reading this and they've been believing that there's going to be a day where they're going to come back into this Holy Land. Well, 1948, May 14th, 1948, after the war, the UN signs the land, the Holy Land, the, the exact location that God promised Abraham back to the Jewish people, and declares Israel a nation. Isaiah says, can a nation be born in one day, and yet I'll do it, and I'll bring to the point of delivery, and I will cause birth. In one day, one day, 1948, May 14, they signed that land back to Israel. The fig tree budded again, and understand this, since then, there has been a flood of Jewish people returning back to Israel. And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the former president of Israel, had actually produced this law called Aliyah. It wasn't a law; it was like an incentive program, Aliyah, which Aliyah means ascent, songs of ascent, the songs in the Psalms, the songs of ascent, the songs of Aliyah. It's the it's the, uh, what they used to sing as they came back to Jerusalem. If they went to war, they would sing these songs on their return back to Jerusalem. So he he signed this incentive program called the Aliyah, which is the ascent back to Jerusalem, and he actually gives. P- Jewish people worldwide, if you can prove your Jewish heritage, money to come and relocate back in the Holy Land, they'll give you land, they'll give you money, they'll pay your ticket for your aircraft and your family to come back to the Holy Land. And there has been, you should look. go look it up on Google after, there has been an insane amount of Jewish people coming back, more than ever in history. We are seeing the unfolding of end time events before our eyes. This was promised 2,000 years ago, prophesied. It came to pass to the dot, to the T. And so the, all the, and I can go on. Daniel prophesying of the four kingdoms that would come, the four world kingdoms that would come after him. Talking about Alexander the Great and the Greeks, the Babylonians. He talked about the the Roman Empire, and I forget the fourth one, but the the Grecian Empire, I think I mentioned that. But there's four empires that would come. Uh, Isaiah literally names Cyrus by name, when Cyrus wasn't even a thought in his mother's mind at that point, and he talks about this king called Cyrus who would arise and deliver the Israeli people out of Babylonian captivity, and that's exactly what happened. God anointed Cyrus, who was not even a, 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 a godly person; he was a, a Gentile man, but anointed him to defeat Babylon, and then had favor on the Jewish people and said, "Hey, you know what? Take your land back. Go back to Jerusalem." And they began to build the walls and all that. All of that happened. Their Babylonian exodus, the 70 years that they spent in Babylon, that was prophesied of Jeremiah, and if you calculate how many years they spent in in Babylon, was exactly to the date, 70 years, I mean that was prophesied years before, they ever even were, uh, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, because he kept prophesying Babylon was going to come and take him away captive, and a nation far away was going to take him away captive, and they'd be slaves again. And they, they called him the weeping prophet and the wailing prophet because he kept prophesying this doom and gloom and they didn't believe it and then it happened. So there's the, the supernatural part of the Bible is heavily proven by its prophetic nature which I have to make this clear, there's no other religious textbook that comes close to even prophesying and if they did, it was wrong. Nothing. There, I don't even think there's another religious book that actually attempts to prophesy because that would disqualify it Im- immediately. So the indestructibility of the Bible, the origins of the Bible, the history of the Bible, the the effect of the Bible, and the resilience of the Bible are all supernatural. Voltaire said this. I love saying this story because it's the humor of God. Voltaire said this that within one hundred years the Bible would be an extinct book, an antiquated document that nobody would pay attention to. A hundred years later, Voltaire was dead, and the the very house that he lived in, in France, where he penned those thoughts down, the Bible publishing house of Europe purchased years after that, and they've made it a distribution center for Bibles throughout Europe. What a great God we serve. Not only did he shame-face Voltaire, but the very place he lived is now the origin source of the circulation of Bibles throughout the entire continent of Europe, One one of them at least. Isn't that powerful? What a great God we serve. All right, let's move on. Seven Bible verses that changed my life. I can't do this without doing number one, Isaiah 53. Some of you know my testimony. Some of you don't. Isaiah 53, verse three through five. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely, he has borne our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The very first Bible verse that totally shook my world was what I just read. I had never read that growing up in church. Left the church eight years later, seven years later, came back, got saved. And then I heard a preacher preach out of that passage. And it shook my world because I had OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, an incurable disease of the mind And it's demonic, for sure, 100%. There's no discounting that. Anyone with OCD would understand that it is a demonic thing. I'm not saying you're demon-possessed, but I'm saying the source, the origin of it is demonic. God's certainly not going around giving people OCD because He's not the God of confusion. He's the God of peace and the God of order. So I I got saved, but I still had this attack and this captivity in my life. And when I read this, Isaiah 53, specifically verse 5, that by the stripes of Jesus, that that he bore, you know, verse four says he bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. I know I just read it says griefs and sorrows, but if you go and look at the original Hebrew, it says he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. So what did this teach me at that moment when I heard it the first time? It taught me that healing was not an afterthought for God when he sent Jesus to that cross. Because if all God wanted to do was get you to heaven and give you a passport to access heaven so that you can live with him eternally. Then all Jesus would have to do is, verse 5 says, Wounded by his for our transgressions. Or another translation says, Pierce through for our transgressions. And bruise for our iniquities. Because our transgressions was what separated us from God. We all fall short of the glory of God because of sin. The wages of sin was death, but the free gift of God was life eternal by Christ Jesus. If all God wanted to do was get you to heaven, all he, Jesus would have had to have done is get piercings in his hands, cause his blood to shed uh, the, the the crown of thorns, to get rid of our guilt, and that was it. That was it. That would get rid of the consciousness of sin. That would get rid of, of, um, of the problem of sin. That would get rid of the curse of sin. And we would have right standing before God. But the Bible says that he also bore our sicknesses in his body. Did you ever wonder why it took Jesus only six hours to die when crucifixion was meant to to last about two to three days of excruciating? The very word excruciating literally means out of the cross, excruciating, crucial means the cross and X means out of, out of the cross. It's a pain that is likened to the cross. That's where the term came from. Isn't it interesting that Jesus died in six hours when it was meant to be a prolonged period of torture where it was excruciating for them? Why did he die so quick? Because not only did he bear the sins of the world on his body, 1 Peter 2.24 says, he bore our sins in his body that uh, that we being dead to sin might live to righteousness. Not only did he have the sin of the world and everything that you did and all the depression and anxiety that you had in your head on him, but the Bible says he also carried our sicknesses. He carried our pains. And then it says, by his stripes we were healed. So if Jesus, all he wanted to do was get you to heaven, he would have skipped the whipping post. He would have went straight for the cross. But Isaiah prophesied 780 years before that, saying there's going to be a Messiah, a suffering servant, who's not only going to take piercings in his hands, but take note of this, he's going to take whips on his back, and the stripes that are ru- that are." Ripping the flesh off his back and the blood shed from those stripes are going to purchase healing power for his people and that healing would become a divine right and privilege to the born again redeemed child of God. When I saw that it taught me healing was not an afterthought. Healing was the main what part of the main meal of the gospel. It's part and parcel in the gospel. Healing is God's provision from the cross. It taught me that I don't have to wait to be healed. That one day, I hope God will heal me. It taught me that the same way I can look back to the cross for salvation from sin and deliverance from the guilt of sin, I can look back to the cross for healing in my physical body. That the same work, the same sacrifice sacrifice that Jesus uh, performed at that cross that dealt with the sin issue, dealt with the sickness issue sin and sickness are the siamese twins of hell healing and salvation and forgiveness are the siamese twins of redemption and you can look through the entire bible oftentimes god connects forgiveness of sins to healing for the physical body numbers 21 i'll give you one example The people of Israel had turned against God, complained against God, complained against Moses, his servant, and the Bible says God allowed serpents to come and bite every one of them, and they began to have fevers, and they were dying one after another. It was a pandemic in that day, and uh, what happened was is uh, Moses cried out to the Lord on behalf of the people, and the Lord said, take a, a, a staff, a wooden staff, and fashion on it a bronze serpent. And lift it up in the sight of all of Israel. And it shall happen that whosoever will look to the serpent, the brazen serpent, which represents, I mean, what broke out in the camp of Israel? It was the serpent. It represents the curse. It represents the penalty of sin. Interesting that God said, take it and put it on a wooden stick. That's Jesus being put on that cross to absorb the curse of sin, the curse of sickness, the curse of the original fall. And then, It shall happen now. whosoever will look to the brazen serpent, look to uh, the replacement for our penalty that it was laid on that pole, they will not only be forgiven, they will look and they will live. They'll be healed. Jesus said in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall I, the son of man, be lifted up Well, are you going to tell me that a brazen serpent on a pole that represented what Christ was going to do had more power to forgive and more power to heal than the actual Jesus on that cross taking upon himself the curse of sickness, disease, disobedience, and the original fall? Absolutely not. Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 5 taught me that I don't have to look forward to something. I can look to the cross and live. I can look to the cross and every need of humanity is abundantly supplied at the cross. Number two, Bible verse that changed my life. Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. If you're just tuning in now, you'd help me if you share this broadcast. We have 181 people on. That's wonderful. Let's get this word out. It's going to help a lot of people. A lot of people are going to get delivered and healed. And light bulbs, I feel like light bulbs are coming on even right now. That's right. Someone, Jen Thomas said, I heard Michael Culeano say, to not heal in his name, we've wasted his stripes. Absolutely. That's very, very well said. Galatians chapter 3, and if you lo- listened on Tuesday, then you have a uh, already like a pre-knowledge of what I'm about to say, but Galatians 3 and 13 and 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So not is going to redeem us. Not one day we'll get redemption. Christ has already redeemed us. From the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, just as it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." Verse fourteen, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon those, uh, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians three thirteen and fourteen taught me that I'm not cursed. It taught me not to have a curse mentality. A cursed consciousness about myself. Or I just feel cursed, brother. I just feel like I'm unlucky. I just feel like nothing ever works out for me. I just feel like I'm under a curse. Or I, I my, there's a generational curse on my life. I, I just feel like, you know, I'm damaged. Galatians 3.13 14 taught me to never speak those things about myself. Because the Bible says, doesn't matter if you feel anything, you are blessed with believing Abraham. I'm, not only am I not cursed, I'm uncursable. Numbers 23, listen to this. So this is like a, a that verse, number, Galatians 3 is tied in with Numbers 23. Be like a two-in-one special. Numbers 23, listen to this. Numbers 23 and verse 23. For there is, actually let's start with verse 20. Behold, I have received the command to blessed. God has blessed, and I can't even reverse it. So not only am I not cursed, I'm blessed, and I have an irreversible blessing on my life, and I'm uncursable. I'm, you have to see yourself that way. Because the devil's going to gladly accommodate your view about yourself that you're, you're cursed. He'll make you feel cursed. He'll bring things around your life that will make you look cursed. The Bible says, I have been blessed and I, nobody can even reverse it. So it doesn't even matter if the witches in Africa and South Africa and Canada and America, if they all got together and got a big cauldron and began to brew chicken blood and whatever they did, The blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful to prevail over the blood of chickens, over the blood of goats, over the blood of anything that might be shed to do some incantation. All of them will fail because I am uncursable. He has not observed sin in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. If you live a holy life, this is about you right now. So if you're living in sin, you're on your own. The Bible says very clearly, he who sows in sin will reap in sorrow. The Bible says, the sorrows of those who hasten after other gods will be multiplied. You're on your own. There's nothing we can do. The wages of sin is death. That's a law God has set in motion. God doesn't even have to actually curse you. Sin by itself attracts and magnetizes a curse. So God doesn't have to do anything. If you stand in a river and you're getting wet, God doesn't have to make you wet. You're in a place where you're naturally going to get wet. But if you've not, the Bible says, he's not observed iniquity in me, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And remember, we have the blood of Jesus that covers us, and we have white robes of righteousness, not by works of our own righteousness, but by his grace alone, we've been regenerated and renewed. We've put on Christ. The Bible says that we are now, we can approach his throne above reproach, holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle in his sight. So God, when he looked on Jesus, Uh, And he saw him as a pure, spotless lamb. Now he looks on us the same way. We're pure in his sight. That's what the Bible teaches. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. Listen to this. Numbers 23, 23. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against the house of Israel. It must be said of Jacob and of Israel, O what God has done. Verse 25 then Balak said to Balaam, "So don't curse them at all or bless them at all." Balaam said, "Didn't I tell you that all that the Lord speaks I must do? I must do. There's no sorcery against Jacob. Neither is there any divination or witchcraft that can be launched against the house of Israel. And I'm part of spiritual Israel. I'm par- I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm part of Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. I have the blessing of Abraham. I'm part of the seed of Abraham and a recipient of all that God promised Abraham. Remember, God promised Abraham, not only I'm going to bless those that bless you, but anyone that takes it upon themselves to curse you, good luck for them. A decision to curse a child of God is a decision to hang yourself. It never goes well. Herod stretched out his hand against the the church in Acts chapter 12, took James, beheaded him, Then he went after Peter, was going to do the same thing. The church prayed, and what happened? Herod was stricken with worms, and he died. The angel of the Lord killed him. Very dangerous. He that touches you touches the apple of God's eye, and the Bible says, I will strike him down. God said that. The Bible says, I will arise and contend with those that contend against you. So Galatians 3 taught me that. That's why I can walk around without fear. That's why I'm not worried about what the devil's doing or political parties are doing. Oh, do you hear what they do in the White House? Do you hear what they do in the, oh man, do you hear what they're uh, plotting against, uh, against that nation and all that? It, it doesn't matter. I'm in Canada right now. It, it, it's tyranny here right now. Do you think I'm worried about oh, what's, what's, what's the prime minister doing? What's my minister in Quebec doing? What's, I don't care what they're doing. They can do everything they want. I'm blessed. Money's going to flow in, a, in an off season. Money's going to flow in a good season. Health's going to be there in a pandemic. Health's going to be there when we're in a non-pandemic. I'm not ruled by what's happening in this world. My life is not dictated by what the devil's agenda is. I'm bl- God's agenda is to bless me, to prosper me, to increase me, to even in the midst of a famine, the Bible says, ye shall be well satisfied and abundantly supplied. So, quit saying I'm blessed and say uh, I'm cursed. Quit saying I'm cursed and said, say I'm blessed and I'm uncursable. I'm not bound by the curse of the original fall. I've received my heavenly heritage. Where others fail, I prosper. Where others are defeated, I'm victorious. Where others back down, I rise up. Where men say there's a casting down, there's only a lifting up for me. That's how Abraham lived. That's how I live. Number three. Philippians four nineteen. Philippians chapter four verse nineteen. Philippians four nineteen. Here it is. Philippians four nineteen. Hold on, pages are like. There you go. Start with. Let's start with verse. uh, Verse eighteen: Indeed, I have all, and I am, and I abound. I am full, and I have received from a. Imagine, actually, I'll say it's Philippians 4, 18 and nineteen. I am full, and I am, a, I abound. I have, in, I have received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, well acceptable to God, an acceptable sacri- sacrifice, well pleasing to God. Verse nineteen: And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This impacted me a lot because it showed me that God doesn't just meet financial needs or physical needs. God meets every need. Every single need. It doesn't matter what your need is. There's that Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. She was wealthy. She wasn't sick. She was old, even advanced in age. But she didn't have a child and she always wanted a kid. Elisha said, by this time next year, you'll have a child. Her need was not financial. Her need was not uh necessarily physical, her need was she wanted a kid, she wanted to have a family, and God supplied that need according to his riches and glory. You look at the centurion's servant, his need was his his servant was not well, and he was it was like delaying everything he wanted to do because he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. his right hand man was out out of commission his need was more than just physical it was his business was was suffering for it and yet God supplied his need when he healed his servant. you look at the axe head in second Kings when elisha's servant uh, one of the prophets loses the axe head that wasn't a financial need or a physical need or any that was just hey I lost my my axe head and that belonged to a friend of mine I would hate to tell my lost his axe head. And Elisha just threw a stick in the water and the stick caused the axe head, which it went against the law of gravity and the law of, of nature for the axe head to start floating. That need was supplied according to God's riches and glory. So Philippians 4 taught me two things. One, God has the ability to supply every single one of my needs. And two, God delights in supplying all of my needs. God wants to be the author of and perfecter of your faith. God wants to be the originator of every good and perfect gift in your life. God delights in giving you the desires of your heart. People have this image of God that he's some like tyrant, that he's somehow uh, uh, like uh, like Uncle Scrooge, that he's, you know, I don't want to bother you today. Just, Just, if I can just stay out of your radar and just coast... I'll be okay. Don't do me good. Don't do me any bad. Let me just coast in life. They're like scared of him. When in reality, God's heart is to bless his children. You know, it's amazing. I talked about the blessing on Tuesday. And you had religious people. They couldn't handle it. I go and do a broadcast on the curse and and, and, and and what I can do a broadcast on what the curse is and generational curses. I'd have people cheering me on. Oh, praise the Lord. They, they have, a you know, a increased viewership that day. Start talking about the blessing of God, how God is good. That every good and perfect gift. I mean, I'm just quoting scripture. I'm really not talking about what I think God is like. It really doesn't matter what I think God is like. It's what the scripture says about God. And I start talking about it and then it's like they can't handle it. They can't handle it. They're like the, bro- the prodigal son's brother. They saw the prodigal son get blessed after he returned and got redeemed. And what did they do? The religious mindset. Can't believe you're doing that for them. No, no, no. Not under my watch. And they get irritated by it. You're irritated by seeing others promoted? You have a religious devil. You're irritated when you see other people healed? You have a religious devil. You, you're irritated when you see other people blessed? You have a problem. I celebrate other people's blessing. I celebrate when other ministers are advancing. I celebrate Isaiah Saldivar. I celebrate Vlad Savchuk, David David Diga Hernandez. I celebrate these great ministries. I celebrate how God is expanding them. I'm not saying, well, I only have 12,000 subs. They have 190, 250. I just can't, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm just as good a preacher as any one of them. I feel, I'm not doing that. I celebrate them. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from from heaven. That's what uh, John the Baptist said about Jesus when all the crowds were coming to him. He wasn't going around camp. Man, after everything I did, I even even endorsed Jesus' ministry. I said he was the Lamb of God. And now everyone's going there, and he's he's not contacted me, doesn't even have me as a guest speaker, for goodness sakes. He wasn't doing that. He celebrated. Because what you celebrate in others, God will make happen for you. Philippians 4.19 taught me that. That God delights in blessing me. He wants, he, the Bible says, he will, he not, not he'll. if he sees it fit, he'll You know, give you what you need. He said he will supply all your needs. And he tells you how in verse 18. I am abundantly supplied. I'm overflowing. So God doesn't want to just meet the need. God wants you to overflow. Remember when he broke the five loaves and the two fish? He didn't get enough just so that everybody had one little piece so they can make enough to get home and, ha- and get, go into their own fridge and eat their own food. He made an overflow. There was 12 baskets, leftovers of the fragments that remained. God is not El Chipo. He's El Shaddai, the God of more than enough, the God of abundance. The Bible says, Now unto him was able to do far more abundantly. Don't let any devil back you down from having good desires. Now, if you have a desire to have world domination and 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 genocidal maniac then yes you know god's not going to give you the desires of your heart you have a desire to cause a home to break or split a church then god's not going to give you the desires of your heart but if your heart your desire is found in scripture and your desire is righteous and your desire lines up with the bible don't ever let any devil guilt you into feeling wrong for having desires i get people that get talk to me all the time i feel wrong for asking god why If God did not spare his only son but delivered him up for us all, will he not freely give us everything else? Romans 8.32. That's what the Bible says. Lay hold. Fight the fight of faith. Part of fighting the fight of faith is getting behind the guilt feelings and demonic lies that tells you it's wrong to have that. It's wrong to do that. It's wrong to want prosperity and stuff like that. It's wrong to have pros- want prosperity if you- the love of money is in your heart and you just want increase so you can build your kingdom, build your name, build your fame. But if the desire and motivation is pure in that I want to prosper just like Truth Kathy did with Chick-fil-A so that I can bless the kingdom so that I can advance the kingdom so that I- I can be a, a, a financier of this end time harvest. Then it's wrong to not have prosperity. It's wrong to not want prosperity. The love of money is the root of all evil. But I always say it this way. Money in the heart is poison. Money in the hand is a good tool. And it's a great tool. If, it was, if, money, was, if money was the root of all evil, why did Jesus have a treasurer? And obviously with a lot of money because they were ready to buy a whole a whole uh, it's he said that it was going to cost a whole year's wage to supply everybody's food in that wilderness and they had they were going to do it he had money he wasn't poor all this stuff Jesus was poor really if he was so poor why did they take his tunic which was woven in one seamless a seamless tunic why did they take his tunic and cast lots for it and they bet for it the the soldiers who were well to do because they were coercing people in a in a corrupt manner, people's taxes and all that, they were they were bullying people for money. And yet they were they were betting for his tunic. Well you don't know, if someone had some like ripped up Walmart garment, I'm not putting a money I'm not putting a bet on that. But if someone had like, you know, like a a timeless Rolex that kept on increasing with in value over time, yeah, I might want to buy that. Yeah, I, I might want to have that. So Jesus wasn't poor. The early church wasn't poor. That's a lie too. Because they had a daily distribution center. You can't be poor and have a distribution center where you're meeting the needs of your community. So Philippians 4 taught me that. God wants to meet my needs and God shall supply all my needs. All of them. Financial, physical, family, family relationship needs. You're believing God for a, a spouse? The Bible says that... He does not withhold any good from them that walk uprightly. And then Proverbs 18:22 says he that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And God will not uphold or withhold good things from you. Part of that supplying all your needs is God giving you a spouse. Number 4, Malachi 3:8 through 12. So this ties in kind of with it. Malachi 3:8 uh, through 12. This is what the Bible says. Malachi 3, 8-12, will a man rob God? And yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse. God's saying this. For you've robbed me, even this whole nation. So bring all the tithes into my storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this. The only place in the entire Bible where God said, test me says the Lord of hosts, and see if I'll not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, so much so there won't be enough room to receive it. And I'll then rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. He won't eat away at your paycheck so that he'll not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord, and all the nations will begin to call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. This passage taught me to tithe and to offering, that to withhold tithes and offerings, is actually to, to incur a curse on, on my life. That if I don't tithe and I don't give offerings, it actually, the Bible says, you are cursed with a curse for you've robbed me. You're robbing God. And the Bible says in Proverbs, the thief in the house of the thief is the curse of the Lord. Now people always say, well, tithing's Old Testament. Oh, that's Old Testament. Tithing is in the law. He ta- Moses talks about it. But tithing predates the law. Because Abraham, in Genesis chapter 14, I believe it is, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek, who was a type, He some people say that it was Jesus in the flesh, like a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And Abraham tithe he gave a tithe of all to Melchizedek. So the tithe, first of all, it predates the law. Secondly, people say there's no tithe in the New Testament, you haven't read your Bible. Because Matthew 23, and I believe it's 23, Verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says, you hypocrites, you Pharisees, for you tithe in mint, cumin, and all spices, yet you neglect the weightier parts of the law, which is love, justice, and mercy. The verse doesn't end there. Jesus goes on to say, these things you ought to have done. So he's saying tithing. You ought to have done it. See, you talk about money. The, The viewership just went from 185 to 162. You see what I mean? Oh, no, no, my money? Don't touch my money. Because where your heart is, there your treasure is. Don't touch my money. Because your money represents the best of you. Because that's, what do you do every day when you go to work? What do you think you're working for? Stamps? Are you working for uh, a pat on the back? You're working just to be a nice contributor to society? Or are you working for money? Or Roberts used to say, money represents the best of you. Because you spend most of your time in life working for it. And then you start saying that you're to give God the tithe and the offering. No, 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 no. Now you're requiring too much from me. See what I mean? Anyways. Um, the tithe and the offering is in Matthew 23, 23. Then he goes on into Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8. Uh, 7 and 8. It says that here on men. So this is New Testament. This is not law. This is, not, this is New Testament. And the writer of Hebrews says that uh, here on earth, men receive tithes. So he said that practice of tithing hadn't changed in the church. They were still tithing, and they were still giving offerings. The practice of tithing had not changed. And the Bible says here on earth, men receive tithes. So you tithe to your church, you tithe to a ministry, you give offerings to a ministry, whatever. Here on earth, men receive it, but in heaven, Hebrews 7, verse 7 and 8 says, there in heaven, Jesus Christ receives it, of whom it is witness that he lives. Malachi 3, 8 through 12 taught me the tithe, taught me to give my best of the portion. You know, Abel, he gave of the best. That's why God says, give the first 10%. And the tithe is not after you've spent everything, paid your taxes and all that, whatever's left over, I'll give a 10th of that. No, it is whatever is your net, uh, no, sorry, gross your gross. Whatever comes in before taxes, before everything. Because remember, Jesus said, render unto Caesar's what are Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, which is whatever tax percentage you have from your gross income. So you make 100K a year, 20% goes to the government, whatever, which in Quebec, if I told you the percentage, you'd flip out. It's not 20%. It's like 48 to 52%. But anyways, you render unto Caesar, what is Caesar's? From the gross. So 100,000, 20% is 20,000. But then you render unto the Lord, what is the Lord's? He says 10% minimum. And then there's the offering, which also is a minimum of at least 1%. So that's 10 grand of that 100 grand every year should be going towards the advancement of the kingdom of God. And then then, uh, the offering, whatever, that's whatever you choose to give above and beyond the tithe. Give a love offering which is New Testament, and Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Number five scripture that changed me, changed my life, revolutionized the way I thought, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Viewership will probably go back up now, because you stopped talking about money. All right, he's done. Let me come back. Let me come back. I love TJ when he preaches on the blessing and, and favor, and you know he talks about, like, I'm going to be blessed, and but then... When, I have to, when he talks about, you know, I actually have to give something, and I'm not even taking up an offering for me. This has nothing to do with me. But when, I, when, he, when he talks about giving money and stuff, no, no, I work too hard for my money. Church doesn't need my money. Yeah, what does the church need your money for? Oh, really? Do you go to Walmart, and you're saying, Walmart doesn't need my money. What does Walmart need my money for? You go to McDonald's, and you're like, hey, 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 just see my heart. You don't need my money. Give me that burger. Paul actually says... If they've ministered to you spiritual things, if ministers in, king, in church kingdom people are, are ministering spiritual things, he actually says, is it so great a thing that you now are required to, to minister in material things? Is it such a great thing that they should reap material things now so they can continue the work and, and continue on in doing what God's called them to do? Is it such a great thing? People have no problem throwing their money at everything. They'll pay $400 to go and watch a baseball game at Fenway Stadium in Boston, Massachusetts so they can get right behind the, the, the plate, right behind home plate and get foul balls threatening their lives every single moment of that day. But then... God says, hey, hey, give me just 10% and then whatever else you want to do, just do it. And I'll bless the rest of the 90 as a result of it. Because remember, the blessing of Malachi 3 is not just we have to, oh, well, I can't believe I have the tie No, there's a blessing attached to the obedience to that scripture. If you'll do it, see if I will not open up the windows of heaven. You want to shut heaven over your life? Go ahead. Just getting saved doesn't mean the heavens are open over your life. Because there's a lot of Christians that are financially miserable and messes. and they, And a lot of them... I can guarantee you, they don't give. John D. Rockefeller started tithing from his first paycheck of 70 cents. And look at where that brought him. And he continued to tithe. You look at other guys, uh, Colgate, the guy that has, you know, the brushing, the toothpaste company, he was a tither and tithe and tithe. J.C. Penney tithed until he got to a point where he was so large as a business, he started to reason, well... 10% of what I'm making now is way, way too much. So let me go back to, let me go down to 5%. When he got, went down to 5%, because if God tells you to build a boat, an ark, you don't build a canoe, because you're going to get killed. God told Noah, build an ark, not a canoe. If God said, there's no, oh, well, I tithe 5%. That doesn't even make sense. The the very word tithe literally means 10%. You can't tithe 5%. It's like saying, I tithe 1%. You can't, it's it's not even, it doesn't even make sense in English. When you tithe, you're giving 10% of something. Uh, JC Penny tried to reason with God, went down to five percent, and his business started to plop. Then he went back, he realized the Lord rebuked him, he went back to ten percent, and it expanded to what to what it is today. J.C. JCPenney was a tithing man. Um, Ephesians 1. Listen to this. This is an amazing one. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse seven uh, let's start with verse. 15, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, don't give, don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, pay special attention to this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling the riches of the glory and the inheritance of the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought about in christ jesus when he raised him from the dead and sat him at his right hand in heaven this taught me that as Christians, the greatest enemy to your destiny and in progress is not the devil. It's ignorance. Paul said, not I pray that you get breakthrough in that. He didn't say, I pray that you be healed. He didn't say, I pray that the devil leaves you alone or that you have dominion over him. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened so you can see. The greatness of God's power that's alive and well in you. And this you can tie with Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now unto him was able to do far more abundantly all that you can ask or think according to his glorious power at work in you. David Oedepo, Bishop David Oedepo, he always says this, There is no mountain in any man's life outside of the mountain of their own ignorance. There is no mountain in any man's life. There's nothing impossible. The only mountain people have to cast out of their life is the mountain of ignorance. My people are destroyed because they lack knowledge, because they're ignorant. Paul says, you know, I'm sure they had people from Ephesus writing to him saying, hey, I'm believing God for my family to be restored, or I'm believing God for healing in my body. He didn't say, hey, let me pray for your healing. He said, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation concerning God's word would be given to you so that you can already see what belongs to you. This taught me that ignorance is the greatest hindrance or obstacle to the blessing of God. That the moment, you know, the Bible says that um, the entrance of God's word brings light. And remember, light overpowers darkness, overwhelmingly conquers darkness, and darkness cannot conquer it. John chapter 1 verse 5 says that. So when the word gets in you, and there's understanding of the word, I'm not talking about just aim, you know, Empty quotations of the word. I'm talking about the word in your heart with understanding is light. And that light enables you to dominate no matter the area that you're in. So the more I know and apply the word, the stronger I am. The more I have revelation of the word. Revelation leads to manifestation of God's power. So I'm not looking to man's help. I, whenever I have a problem, I go to the word and I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to enlighten me to the solution to a to a pertinent problem that I'm facing. Understanding your identity. Understanding your identity in Christ. It changes you. Understanding the law of God and the boundaries the, devil's ha- the devil has. The Bible says... In Psalm 91, that pestilence, disease can stalk in darkness, but it shall not come near thee, for his word and his truth will be your shield and your buckler. So when you get revelation of the word, it, it now sets up boundaries in your life where the devil cannot pass. When, you know, when people don't know the word or don't know their identity in Christ, the devil can do anything and they'll just say things like, "Huh, ah, you know, life comes, life happens. Not even knowing that it's an attack the devil has orchestrated to wipe them out. Well, you know, shall we only accept good things in life? That's how they talk. Really, they're lazy and they haven't fasted and prayed to go after the light, the revelation of the word to see, they'd actually start seeing that a lot of the things happening in their life are const- heaven constitutionally wrong. America has a constitution. Can't just do anything. Cop can't just do anything. Cop can't just walk into your house without a warrant. There's too many Christians that the devil has come into the house without a warrant. And because, shall we just, we'll just accept anything in life. You know, whatever comes our way. How many of you know, victory comes in the next. They just accept anything. He has no warrant. He's planted. Could you imagine I just walked into your house? And I just started moving things out of your house. Your TV, your, your kitchen, your stove, your, your microwave. And then you're just there on the couch, hey, is there anything I can serve you? You know, as you break into my house and commit open burglary right before me. Would you do that? Or would you get a bat and knock me over the head and drag me out? And if you're in certain states, just go full Rambo on me. You'd go full Rambo. Because what I'm doing is not constitutionally right. And I have a constitutional right to defend myself. When you don't know the word, you're ignorant. And as a result, you're... you're, whatever comes your way, you just take it as life happens. Instead of rising up with faith and a violent faith at that, to take the devil by the ear and cast his bony behind out of your house. Ignorance leads to tolerance. Whereas revelation leads to manifestation of freedom. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. So Ephesians 1:17 through 23 taught me that. I can either have my life slapped around in the direction that every wind takes me in, or I can look into the word of God, have my eyes open to the exceeding greatness of God's power that's available to me, the resurrection power of God that's available to me, and take advantage of it, set up boundaries. You know, I always give this example. If you bought land somewhere, and they... And uh, they set up boundaries with like, you know, pink sticks or something in the ground. You bought 10,000 square feet in a specific area. You can't just have someone come in and start building on your line. That's your land. They have no right to do that. They have no right to do that. It's not theirs. They don't have the title deed to that land. You do. Well, the word of God is the title deed to the things that we have been given uh, or that have been given to us by, by God himself. And so when you don't know it, the devil can come in and he can plant sickness the devil will come in, he'll plant poverty. The devil will come in, he'll plant misery. He'll plant sorrow of heart. He'll plant whatever. And you'll just take it as it comes. But when you understand that actually this word is the is the title deed of what I possess, being born again. And these things the devil's trying to plant are unconstitutional and unlawful planties, plantings of those things. You can uproot them and throw them out and take a firm stance. That's why the Bible says, having done all, you stand. You take a stand against these things. Ephesians 1 taught me that. Number 6, Colossians 1, 12 through 13. I got two more and then we're going to pray. Colossians 1, 12 through 13. Listen to this. Paul said, giving thanks unto the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, this is where, this is uh, the main scripture. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of the son of his life, of his love. I don't belong to darkness anymore. I'm not under the tyrannical regime of Satan. Satan. I'm not going to be manipulated or influenced. I'm not subject to the devil's reign of terror any longer. This put in me a violent reaction against the devil's work everywhere I go. This put in me, uh, if I be a man of God, let fire come from heaven and devour you type of mindset. This put in me that, let me pick up the shield of faith and quench every fiery dart of the devil type of mindset. Because it shows me, I've been delivered out of the prison cell of hell, to which I was captive before, And I've been translated into the kingdom of God. My citizenship is heavenly. I'm born from above. I'm not subject to the devil. The the devil is subject to my will and my command. Commands in any organization... Come from the top to the bottom. You don't see the salesman of AT&T going up to the CEO of AT&T and saying, hey, this is how we should run the business. Rather, it's the CEO and the managers and executive managers that issue commands down towards what the salesman says and what the salesman are, are, how they pitch their product. Not the other way around. In the same vein, I'm born from above, and the Bible says I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. I've been delivered from the clutch of sin and Satan, and I now dwell in a kingdom that is far above principalities, far above dominion, far above every, every authority of hell, every name that is named, and as a result, I'm going to conduct myself that way. I'm the one giving commands, not the other way around. I'm not looking under my bed to see whether the devil's there. He's looking under his bed to see whether I'm there. Because I am the principality everywhere I go. Oh, did you hear there's a demon principality here? Really? Because I last time I checked, greater is he that lives in me than he that's in the world. I'm the principality because the Holy Ghost lives in me. Know ye not, ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when I saw that I was delivered from the powers of darkness, I saw not only do I have dominion over the devil, but I also have I, 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 I'm, I'm outside the realm where sickness can thrive. In the power of darkness, sickness increases and thrives. It's an environment that is conducive for sickness to breed and thrive. That's where poverty is. That's where de- depression is, anxiety is, sorrow of heart is. I've been delivered from that dominion. You know, when you go into a country, I'm in Canada right now, perfect example. Canada and the US, perfect example right now. Because there's such a dichotomy of of, of uh of, of levels of freedom we're experiencing in the united states in most states there's no mandates there's no there's nothing you're you wouldn't even, you don't even think of what we're going through and i won't say the word lest they flag us but c-o-v-i-d you don't even hear of it some states i was in the states last year it was the most refreshing thing nobody talked about it most places you don't even see mass you don't see anything but then you cross over from plattsburgh into quebec and there's mandates, there's restrictions, there's requirements, there's that uh, we had curfew for a, a long time, 8 p.m. curfew, 10 p.m. curfew at one point. It, it, everything changed. Why? Because I'm under the dominion of Canada. I have to respect what the Canadian government does as long as it doesn't contradict God's law. So they said close the churches. We've been open ever since the beginning. We, we didn't we don't close. And we face police coming over to our building every single week, but we don't close because it's against God's law. However, there are certain things that we have to, you know, we have to do. Like, I, I can't, we, you're, out, you're outside of your house after 10 10 p.m. You're going to get pulled over by the cops. They'll issue a ticket. I won't pay the ticket because it's not constitutional anyways. But anyways, there's these emergency powers that have led to all this. Because I'm in Canada, I have to submit to that. When I was under the dominion of darkness, I had to submit to those things. You had to submit to sickness. You had to submit to anxiety. I had to submit to OCD all those years. But the moment I switched over to the dominion of light, in which righteousness, healing, prosperity, goodness, mercy, peace, joy, reigns, I no longer submit to those things. I now am a recipient of different things. So my inheritance of Christ, that's what belongs to me. I operate by a different set of rules. I'm a kingdom person. I have kingdom rules that I operate by. The Bible says I'm a citizen of heaven. That means no matter what goes on in the world, no matter what comes on in the economy of my nation, it doesn't affect me. Because my citizenship is in heaven, I'm delivered from the powers of darkness where poverty reigns. I'm now connected. I'm hooked up with heaven's economy and heaven's resources that never run dry. That's what Colossians 1:12 taught me. It gave me a kingdom mindset. I don't talk darkness. I don't talk as though I'm... There's too many Christians that still talk about um, how they're still bound. How they're still... I still feel like I'm a prisoner and all that. And they keep talking that. And they... Even though... You know, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And um, uh, African Americans were set free. It was first signed in the North. But because we don't have Facebook, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have all those tech, you know, uh, social media platforms, it took a little while for it to get to Texas. And so, in the North, African American slaves were set free. The moment it was signed, they heard about it, they can tell their master to pee off and they left. They were free. Men created in the image of God, all men are created equal. They had that revelation from the Bible, by the way, that's where the emancipation proclamation stemmed forth from and they walked on free but the unfortunate ones that were in texas that hadn't heard of that yet they didn't get free until two full years later even though they were technically free it was the law of the land south home christians are isaiah 61 says he has declared to the prisoner that the day of your prison doors being closed are over you're you're free to go And a lot of Christians, they read about it while they're in their cell and they're reading about it and amening it, but they don't have the faith enough to get up and actually just leave so the Bible says you've been delivered from the power of darkness, but so many people are still talking darkness and they're still connecting themselves to darkness and they still talk worldly and they still talk about themselves like they're earthly. No, I'm not earthly. I'm heavenly. I don't have an earthly curse. I have a heavenly blessing and a heavenly heritage and you got to start talking that way. That's what Colossians 1 told me to do and empowered me to do. Number seven, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 13, and I'll finish with this. Second Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. 9 through 13. The Bible says, actually start with 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness or, or, or um, slowness, but He is being patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will f- melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 8-13 through taught me to be focused. It taught me, it showed me the end game, the end goal. That as a believer now, now that I've been saved, I have a mission. Because there is a day where the Lord Jesus Christ will split heaven wide open. And the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with him always. There's going to be a day where this earth is burnt up, all the possessions, all the material stuff, everything's going to be burnt up. And the Bible says a new heaven and a new earth will emerge. Because I know these things. That Christ is coming back for a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle that has its hand to the plow and is working the fields, bringing in the loss, saving the loss at any cost. Everything I do, this verse has impacted me probably more than any other verse other than Isaiah 53 that got me saved and healed. But everything I do now because of this verse is directed and focused, laser focused on bringing in the harvest. That's why we have an evangelistic ministry. That's why when I go out and we do crusades, I'm not telling them three steps to a better you. We're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We're bringing in the lost. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's a day we're going to stand before God and give an account for the things that we've done in the flesh, whether good or bad. And I'm not going to stand before God and say, well, why didn't you open up your mouth to preach the gospel? Well, you know, it wasn't very favorable or popular. In season, out of season, I'm ready to preach. I'm ready to rebuke. I'm ready to exhort. I'm ready to correct. I'm not going to tickle people's itching ears. I'm going to speak the word, whether it's favorable or in season, or whether it's unpopular and out of season. This verse has got me to focus, to stamp eternity on my eyes. So everything I do in this ministry in life is directed towards that end goal to bring in the loss at any cost. I must work the work of him that sent me while it is yet day. For night is coming, Jesus said, where no man can work. There's going to be a day of rest. But until then, this ministry is going after the lost sheep. This ministry is going after the 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 ones that are distressed, dispirited, sheep without shepherds. The Bible says he had compassion on the multitude because he didn't see them as every... You know, people look at the world and they say, oh, You know, it looks like a lot of them have their heads pretty much on right and you know they're doing well financially looks like everything's they they got everything together jesus didn't look at them like that he looked beyond the smile on their face and he saw the unredeemed brokenness emptiness depravity of men and it drove him he said My meat is to do the will of God and to accomplish his good pleasure. And that's the driving force of this ministry. It is to do the will of God and to accomplish God's good pleasure. It is to go after the lost at any cost. The Bible says that woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what 2 Peter 3 did. Because seeing that all of this is going to be burnt by fire, he says what manner of conduct are we to have? Don't live your life. Do not live your life saving up for retirement and that's it. Storing up riches on earth where thieves break in and steal and moth, uh, moth destroy and rust destroys. Instead, put your hand to the plow. Be a soul winner. Let everything you do, if you're in business, there's a way to tie in soul winning to your business. I know a guy, his name is Tim Yosta, who, who's a very uh, wealthy man, young guy, and he 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 he's in a company called Vivant and he has like he wins people to the Lord in his sales campaigns. He has everybody that's under his team is getting the gospel preached to him and he's not obnoxious but he's he's convicting and he's spirit-filled and he preaches with passion and he he gets people saved while he's at work whenever he's got the chance wherever he's at he's an opportunistic person when it comes to spreading the gospel. And look at, God has blessed him tremendously. He took in four, some, four million something dollars last year alone in one year of sales. I'm not saying of sales, I mean, he took in like a hundred million plus dollars of sales, and four million was his income. You can't put God first in this area and end up last. But I want to warn you there is a day that we're going to stand before God and we're going to have to give an account as to what we've done in the flesh. What did you do with the gospel? Did you sit on it? Did you take it as well? At least I'm making heaven, that's all that matters. Or did you have concern for others? Second Peter 3, 8-13 got me to have concern for others. Because he's not, he's not slow concerning his promise. He's patient. God's being patient. He could have come back in 2011. I would have split hell wide open. He could have come back in 2010. He could have come back three months before you got saved watching right now. And you would have went right to hell. But he was patient towards you. And that patience is long-suffering and it's kindness to others now that need to hear the word of the Lord from your mouth. Don't keep quiet. Today is a day of good news. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the opportune time. There's been no more opportune time in history than these last days that we're living in to quit being ashamed and shy. And whatever the Lord has told you in the house, declare it on the rooftop. Let it be made known. God will bless you for it. Those are seven Bible verses that greatly impacted my life, changed me. And there. I know I can go on, there's a lot more Bible verses that, that have transformed me, but those are the seven main ones. I hope it's blessed you, I hope it's helped you. My prayer is that this broadcast will put in you like a hunger to get into the Word. And, 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 and strive to get revelation from the Word and... That there would be an appetite. Like Job said, I have longed for thy word more than my necessary food. That that would be imparted into you through this broadcast. And uh, that you wouldn't receive it as the word of man. But what it really is, the word of God which works its power in them that believe. That you'd mix faith in what I said today. It's not enough just to hear the scriptures. I believe if God did those things for me, if God showed these things to me. You know, Jesus said, what I say to you, I say to all. So God's word is universally applied. Yes, there are specific promises for Israel and all that, but the majority of the Bible is a universal promise to you if you belong to Christ. People always say, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 is just Israel. I know the thoughts I have for you. says, yeah, it is for Israel, but are you going to tell me that God has bad thoughts towards you? No, I know the thoughts I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you good hope, to, not to harm you, but to bless you and to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope So don't take the Bible as if he he wrote it to everyone. When I read the Bible, I always put my name in it. John 3.16, for God so loved TJ. You do the whole world. It's good when you're preaching, but if you start saying the whole world, it's very impersonal. Start to say, God so loved TJ. God so loved Ophah. God so loved Lori. God so loved Sarah. God so loved Michael. God so loved Joanne. God so loved Jelani. God so loved Jim, that he gave his only begotten son, that if Jim would just believe on him, He would not perish, but Jim would have everlasting life. Make it personal, because this is God's love letter to you. To you. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you. It's to you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, that as this word was implanted in their souls, that it would produce the harvest of what it promises. That the word of God is a supernatural seed that produces supernatural results, Lord. We know that your word is... It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It didn't come by human opinion or private interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, the same Spirit that moved on the people to write, that He would move, Holy Spirit, move on your people today as they get into the Word from this day onward to give them understanding in all things that it would quicken the Word to their spirit that they would have encounters with scriptures that perhaps in times past were just things they read, but it this time there was a rhema word. It quickened it to their spirit so that now it it causes a change of course, change of mind, change of story in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.